Start closer to home here with the logging protests going on on southern Vancouver Island. This has been called another war in the woods. It's the Ferry Creek watershed and some of the logging proposed to go on there by the Teal Jones Company based in Surrey. Now, this company has got a legal permit to go in there and do some logging, but environmental groups have set up road blockades blocking the loggers from going in there. There's several blockades that have been set up in the access roads there in that area, and they say they're not leaving. There's been a lot of people up there, too. At some point, over a 100 protesters camped out and blocking the roads up there. Now, the company did get a court injunction to have those protesters moved aside so they could go to work. So far, those blockades have not come down. But check this out now. Now you've got the local First Nation, the Pachidat First Nation in that area saying, we support logging in our traditional territory. Don't be coming in here and telling us what to do. And we want the protesters out. Now I wonder, I wonder if they will respect the wishes of this First Nation in their traditional territory take those blockades down. So far, there's no indication that that's happening. I got Chris Sankey standing by to talk about this, but first, have a listen to this uh, report from Global News. Here's reporter Paul Johnson. Jens Weeding is with the Sierra Club of BC and says the injunction obtained by Teal Jones Thursday is setting up another confrontation in the woods. This is another example where a conflict between a company and activists is arising because the BC government is not showing the leadership needed. A spokesperson for Teal Jones couldn't give details Thursday on when and how the company will enforce the injunction. There are currently two blockades on roads leading to their cut blocks. And in recent weeks, blockaders say their numbers have reached into the hundreds. Okay, what about the First Nation, though? What about the First Nation? This is a traditional territory, the Pachidot First Nation. They're now saying that we support the logging going on in our territory, and we don't want outsiders coming in here and telling us what to do. I always find it extraordinary when you've got environmental protesters who are eager to invoke the interests of indigenous people and first nations as they try to oppose economic development and logging but when you have the first nation themselves say that we support this activity this is our traditional territory and we don't want you here are they going to move now will they take those blockades down and support the wishes of this first nation we shall see. Let's discuss now with my guest, Chris Sankey. Chris is the president of the Blackfish Group of Companies. He's a former elected counselor with the Laxqualam First Nation in Prince Rupert. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Chris, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you for having me, Mike. That was a pleasure. Okay, Chris, um, we have talked about these issues in, in the past. You're an indigenous leader. I know you support a lot of economic development for, for communities that in many cases are poor communities suffering with a lot of unemployment. And I know you've followed uh, this particular standoff here going on in Vancouver Island with this logging dispute. Does this have a, like a familiar ring to you, that this dispute with a, a blockade going on and the First Nation saying, we don't want you here? 100 percent 
I mean, it's yeah. just ludicrous that uh, these groups keep showing up. <clears throat> and, you know, the, if it's not oil and gas, it's forestry. If it's not forestry, it's fish farms. It's just it's a way they keep their funding afloat. Um, clearly, as you laid out in your description, it's the First Nation that is asking them to respectfully leave their territories, and they have right. not done so in the last eight months. Yeah, no, the First Nation yesterday put out a, a very, I thought, powerful and clearly a written statement uh, from the hereditary chief, uh, Frank Quisto Jones, also the elected chief, Jeff Jones. And they said they have always harvested and managed forest resources in their territory, including old growth trees for cultural, ceremonial, domestic, and economic purposes. Okay, so here we have the First Nation themselves telling these protesters, look, we support the activity that's going on here. We don't want you blockading our roads. Do you think those protests, those protest blockades should come down now as a result? Yes, they should. You know, they talk about reconciliation. You know, I see the Green Party and all these other uh, activist groups continuing to say where we stand in solidarity with Indigenous groups that seek to control their inherent right to the land and the resources that they were born to. Yet here they are blocking prosperity to a group that has done their due diligence. They've respected their laws and culture values by teaming up with hereditary leaders. They've come together in harmony to work with the company that has applied for the tenure. In fact, the company didn't even apply for a cut block at Ferry Creek. So they've done their due diligence, due diligence uh, with the community's wishes and, and respected their needs. So they need to understand that they need to respect those wishes and leave the territory and leave those challenges to themselves, and they, which they have done. You know, when you take a look back at the report that was done by the Treaty Commission, uh, it was a yeah. really well-written article by Joshua Haynes, who is a, a writer and coordinator by ResourceWorks. Uh, the, the First Nation have ownership to approximately 1,897 hectares of land transferred to the nation, including former reserves and capital transfers of approximately 19 million and 72. Yeah, 19.72 million. The treaty will recognize the, their, their inherent rights. I mean, you've got to respect the laws. I mean, you, we talked yeah. about how they wanted to incorporate hereditary leadership to have a seat to say with the elected body. Well, here we are, exactly what these NGOs are preaching while they're doing it. Hey, Chris, let me ask you this. This is a situation where the logging that is supposed to go ahead in this particular area, this is a First Nation that has negotiated an agreement with the provincial government to, to get a piece of that. So they, they get revenue from this logging. The reven, when these trees are harvested, there's revenue flows directly to this First Nation. Can you talk a little bit generally about the importance of responsible resource management and how important that is to First Nations in our province that in many cases are living in poverty? Well, look, this is a clear and, and prime example of sustainable development that was uh, uh, respected by the company um, that are following along the lines of the culture values of the First Nation in the area. Uh, these revenues could go back to help with uh, addiction, homelessness, uh, cultural language, um, much needed infrastructure within their communities. Uh, when jobs are created locally uh, in the said First Nation community, what happens is you get more and more uh, of the Indigenous uh, representatives of that community home. 
And, you know, when you talk to so many Indigenous people in this country, the, so many of them would love to go back home, but the reason why they left is because there was no job opportunities. And they yeah. love to be around their family and culture and community. That's who we are as Indigenous people to this country. Of course. Of course. Speaking to Chris Sankey, he's a former elected councillor with the Laxqualam uh, First Nation, and we're talking about the logging standoff going on near Port Renfrew in southern Vancouver Island. Uh, Chris, what what happens, though, when you've got a difference of opinion among among Indigenous people themselves. Like if you have, you know, there's at least one uh, member of this First Nation that supports the blockades. What happens when you have a dispute like that? Like should one Indigenous person have like a veto over a whole project? No, and the chances yeah. are that this, this uh, NGO group has probably brought this individual on salary. Um, I'm going to throw that out there. That's a, there's a pretty good chance uh, it could be covering expenses, whatever have you. But that's not democracy, and you can't let uh, nobody, nobody, even including myself, should be allowed to stop a project, but with one person or a small okay. group. Okay, okay, Chris. Not right. All right, welcome back to the show. We're talking about that logging standoff in southern Vancouver Island. You got several blockades there, preventing workers from going in and cutting down some trees. There's some old growth uh, timber that in dispute. Uh, the local First Nation has just put out an, uh, a statement saying that they support the logging in the region. They want the blockades to come down. Uh, so far, I don't think there's any indication those blockades are coming down at the moment. My guest is Chris Sankey. He's an Indigenous leader who supports economic development uh, for First Nations in B.C. Let's take your phone calls. Ellen on the line in Surrey. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Hi there. Go ahead. I'm just wondering, every time there's blockades like this, how many people in that blockade are from B.C. or, for that matter, even in Canada? Because it seems like they seem to migrate up here to bother in our business when they have enough problems in their own forests in the States. Okay, Chris, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, we don't know for sure who, where these people come from, but what what is your experience on it? Well, actually, she 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 couldn't have said it any clearer. Um, we, in my experience, that these individuals come from back east. Uh, they come from the United States or overseas, and they claim to be representing the First Nation in solidarity when, in fact, they're not even from the province or the country most times. Uh, in a recent report, um, actually the one person that actually started this whole thing was on the United States side who coordinated with the activists on the Canadian side uh, in Washington State. So she's bang on. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous that B.C. and Canada is allowing this to continue to happen in our backyard. We have enough challenges of our own to try and move our economy forward. And now here you have a group that's completely stifling the prosperity of Indigenous uh, community who in turn could help the local region, if not the whole Vancouver Island, and bringing uh, revenues back to the system to help pay for services uh, that we need as British Columbians. Okay, so, uh, star 9898 on your cell is the number to call. Randy on the line in Surrey. Hey, Randy. Good morning. Hi. I'd just like to say, uh, is it not a two-way street? He said nobody has the right to block anything lines and everybody acquires permits in the north to go through and the permits are all there and people block it and then a few of the nations agree and go ahead and, and then a few of them say no and do they, do they remove the blockades at that point i think it should be it's is it not a two-way street here okay how does that work chris we touched earlier on this like when you have first nations that are 
divided and sort of the classic example on this is is was the uh, the natural gas pipeline that we saw several months ago where you had some elected chiefs supported the pipeline and some hereditary chiefs who did not like how do you resolve that well first of all the third party should never be intervening in a dispute between uh, amongst the nation itself I've always said that in order to solve their differences, those that said community needs to get together and sit down and discuss what those concerns are and come up with a plan and move forward. But you can't have these NGOs, which they continue to do, is they intervene in those discussions. And most times what they do is they help uh, collaborate the communication back to the community that's in favor within that nation. And they can't be doing yeah. that because all it is doing is causing more dissension. But it has to be; it has to come internally without third-party intervening. Let's go to Terry on the line in New West. Hey, Terry. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. Okay, I'm just going to ask uh, the, the chief um, a question here. Um, are you employing uh, First Nations people completely? And I would agree with that, that the people from the First Nations are the ones that work in these kind of jobs. And if not, if you can train them and get them to work, um, you know, the land. Uh, you want people to have prosper- prosperity in your nation, and I agree with you totally. So there you go. Okay, Chris, tell me a little bit about the companies that you're involved with. Do you employ a lot of Indigenous workers? Well, first, I, I'm not a, I'm not a chief. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. appreciate the gesture, uh, and I'm not <laughs> from that community. But uh, we do, uh, in our heavy civil, we've had uh, anywhere up to uh, 30 to 50% Indigenous operators. Uh, anyone I try to bring on board with me, I, I look to see whether or not they have the qualifications to work with me, if they're if they Indigenous. But to me, whether you're Black, White, or Indigenous does not matter to me. If you're qualified to work, uh, I have no problem working with you as long as we have the same mindset and, and, and we have the same vision and bringing British Columbians and Canadians together because at the end of the day, we all benefit. Okay, last question for you, Chris. We just got 30 seconds. A lot of these environmental protesters will say they support UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. If you are going to say that on the one hand, should you be consistent then? And when a First Nation tells you, look, we support this logging, thanks, but no thanks, we'd like your blockade to come down. But your thoughts, 30 seconds. 100%. Look, for that particular, you know, the Pachida, it, it states, right, this is right from them. We're recognizing the harvesting of resource rights through its territory and establishing the land, cash, and governance provisions of the treaty. It is their inherent right. They need to respect yeah. that and move on. Okay, we're following it very closely. Chris, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith, and my next guest is Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Federal Conservative Party. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Thanks a lot for coming on again. It's good to be back with you, Mike. Uh, there's lots to talk about here. Let me talk. Uh, ask you first about the current predicament that we find ourselves in here as a country. We've got the third wave of the virus washing over Canada. COVID numbers are surging in many parts of the country, including here in British Columbia. What are your thoughts on Canada's response to this to this crisis right now? Yeah, it's frustrating, Mike. I'm sure for folks in BC who have who have not had the restrictions that some of the other provinces have had uh, in previous waves, it is hitting us hard. 
in large part because we're not ready. We don't have sufficient vaccine supply. This is something we highlighted last fall, the risks that Mr. Trudeau was putting us in because we had no sufficient supply. We had had this uh, failed partnership with a Chinese state enterprise company, CanSino. Uh, that's why we're slower than the U.S. and other countries that are reopening. We're shutting down, and it's really a third wave that's going to be harder because of uh, failure on the federal federal this government's is part. Despite, despite the fact, though, that the Trudeau government had consistently bragged that they had secured like the biggest portfolio of vaccines of any country in the world. So they've got multiple contracts with multiple suppliers. So what went wrong? Yeah, that was their big line, the portfolio. They were going to be months slower than everyone else, but they're going to have the most vaccines in 2022. You know, that doesn't help us uh, avoid the third wave. It doesn't help give certainty to families, Mike. And that that has been just the hiding of their failure. They won't release the contracts. They've fought us at, at every step to even have the health committee look at the COVID response. Um, they they. Don't try and get help from other parties. They don't want to strive to do better. They just try and control the message. And so I hope Canadians see this for what it is. We've been two steps behind federally at every stage in this pandemic. What do you think about Canada's international reputation on this file? It was interesting to see CNN now kind of turning uh, the spotlight on Canada and Canada's failure on vaccine uh, distribution. Here's a short short clip of uh, Jake Tapper, who has a familiar voice to listeners. Have a listen to this. Canada is now outpacing the United States in terms of coronavirus cases per capita. This is a concerning uptick, considering that the Canadian vaccine rollout is not going well at all. What do you think when you hear that? Uh, It's what we feared last fall, Mike. Um, Too little, too late was the word of an expert in Ontario. And, um, you know, I've said I wanted the government to succeed last fall. We asked for a plan so that people would know when the vaccines were going to arise, what priority groups were going to go out quicker, how were we going to be ready with some of the unique needs. The government voted against all of our measures to try and have a national education program and plan. And they didn't want to talk about it because they knew they were going to be slow. And this third wave is the Trudeau wave. We wouldn't have had such a severe hit with the third wave had we'd had 20% of the population vaccinated by now. So I'm, I'm always there to put the country's health and well-being first, but it is frustrating to see how the Liberals have mismanaged this. Okay, speaking to Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, you were top of mind for Justin Trudeau on the weekend in his speech to the virtual liberal policy convention. He gave a speech where he he went after you directly multiple times. Let me play a short clip here of the Prime Minister uh, taking some shots at you here. He's already shown that he's willing to say different things to different people at different times if he thinks it'll help him get ahead. He says he wants to make communities safer, but to get the support of the gun lobby, he promised to make assault weapons legal again. He says he defends a woman's right to choose, but to win the Conservative Party leadership, he told his MPs they could introduce anti-choice laws. Okay, how do you respond to the Prime Minister's attacks here? 
Yeah, sad when the prime minister has a speech full of mistruths and lies. You know, what's interesting, there has never been assault weapons available in Canada. In fact, when I went to Chilliwack for basic training, Mike, as, a, as an 18-year-old, I've used military assault weapons and things like that. They're, they're never permitted. And to suggest that standing up for, for hunters and other people and, and, and really trying to work with law enforcement on the smuggling of illegal firearms from the United States... Mr. Trudeau avoids the real issues that we have to tackle as a country and tries to split and divide and mislead people. So my record has been clear. I'm going to be a principled and ethical leader, something he has trouble with with his third personal ethics investigation underway right now. So I think Canadians deserve better. Well, it depends how you define assault weapon, though, right? Like an AR-15, you you don't define an AR-15 as an assault weapon, therefore, correct? Well, it's, you know, semi-automatic firearms yeah. have been available in Canada for, for decades. And it, it, it is about fairness and not trying to demonize people that hunt or go to the range. Anything that is a, is a fully automatic, you know, weapon has been banned for 30 plus years. And so the terrible attack in Nova Scotia, Mike, um, that Mr. Trudeau tried to suppress the public inquiry on, why did he do that? It's because it took place with yeah. illegally smuggled firearms. That's where we have to go to, to stop these, uh, these shootings that we see in, in Surrey and Toronto and other places. We're prepared to put the resources there to work with law enforcement, and that's going to be our priority. Right. right. You heard him uh, in that clip we just played. He also went after you on abortion issues as well, which is kind of a familiar tactic here with, with the Liberals. But uh, you've got a, one of the members of your caucus, a Conservative MP, who has introduced a private member's bill on uh, so-called sex-selective abortions. Um, why would you allow one of your MPs to introduce a bill like that? Like, I know are you, you're going to vote against that bill, I, I assume. Yeah, I'm going to vote against the bill. I'm pro-choice. Yeah. My position is the same as Mr. Trudeau here, actually. I'm pro-choice. Yeah. And, and a few years ago, Mr. Trudeau said, of course, any uh, cultural practice that devalues uh, baby girls over baby boys is, is wrong. But I'm voting against this bill because we have to defend the, the right for women to choose. Mr. Trudeau knows that. There's freedom of speech for all MPs, Mike, and, and yeah. I stand by freedom of speech. But as prime minister, I will ensure that rights of all Canadians are safeguarded. And my record's actually stronger than Mr. Trudeau's in terms of standing up for rights, including LGBTQ rights. So I'm happy to, to use an honest comparison about his record over mine any day of the week. Speaking to Federal Conservative Leader Aaron O'Toole, I, I believe you uh, had a phone call with the Prime Minister yesterday in advance of the next uh, federal budget. How did that go? Um, I told him uh, that I was frustrated, like all Canadians, on seeing Canada in 40th or 50th place in the vaccine rollout. I was worried it was going to make the third wave harder. I asked him about some concerns over the J&J uh, vaccine. He didn't seem to, to have any details on that. I want to make sure we get vaccines into arms so that we can focus on an economic relaunch and reopening. We've put out a five-point recovery plan. As you know, Mike, we have to make sure we lead in the economic rebuilding from COVID, not lag like we have throughout the crisis. Do you think he wants an election? He has speculated that. The, the Liberals have been posturing and, and positioning. I've long said we need vaccines. We need to get through the acute health crisis. Um, and I've asked Mr. Trudeau to put the health and well-being of Canadians first. I, I hope he does that. But we, we have to be ready. That's also my job. And, and we will be. 
He had another line in his speech on the weekend where he has said that, well, Aaron O'Toole has said multiple times that the Conservatives do not want an election right now, but they've also voted multiple times non-confidence in the Trudeau Liberal government. So I guess his point was, if you don't want an election, why are you voting to take the government down? Well, do I have confidence in Mr. Trudeau's COVID record? You know, 50th place in vaccines, three personal ethical scandals. I don't have confidence in a lot of what Mr. Trudeau does. Do I want to see an election? Do I want to vote the government out and use a confidence measure in the House? No, those are the differences. He he thinks anytime you criticize him that it that it's setting up an election. No, I have a job to do, which is to oppose the government and propose better ideas. And that is what I will do. And with me... Canadians will lead again. We will not see the the crisis and the slow response we've seen under Mr. Trudeau. What did you think about the uh, the sexual the sexual harassment scandals that we see at the very highest levels of the Canadian military, where we've had two successive uh, top military officials now accused of misconduct, and we saw the federal Liberals this week vote to shut down a defense committee probe into high level sexual misconduct in the Canadian forces? Your thoughts? It's a pattern of cover-up that Mr. Trudeau supports. You know, the leadership starts at the top, Mike, when the Prime Minister has three personal ethical violations and doesn't seem to care. There's no accountability. Of course, his MPs are going to cover up the WE scandal. They're going to cover up sexual misconduct investigations. As a veteran myself, I'm ashamed of the fact that we're not standing by women who have a uniform of service for their country and Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Sajan sat on a complaint for three years. That's unacceptable. I've, I've already put out some ideas on how we can bring accountability back with the Canadian Armed Forces. And there's an erosion of trust in all of our public institutions, including the Prime Minister's office. That's why we have an accountability pledge in our Canada Recovery Plan. We need to renew people's faith in public life. Last question for you. We had an extraordinary headline in our province yesterday about the federal government's hotel quarantine program for people coming into Canada, a mandatory hotel quarantine, and more than 100, over 100 people arriving at YVR, Vancouver International Airport, refuse, simply straight out, flat out, refusing to go into a mandatory, so-called mandatory hotel quarantine uh, risking $3,000 a day fines instead. What do you think of that program? Literally everything this government has put out, Mike, has been a colossal failure. You know, when people saw sexual assaults perpetrated uh, against a woman in one of these quarantine hotels, they had real concerns. The te- we have no national program of national testing. We have no national tracing app. All the things Mr. Trudeau last spring promised that Canada would have, we have none of it. And now we're behind the developed world on vaccines. I don't think Canadians deserve such an incompetent government. And that's why I'm not as well known. But as people get to know this ex-military private sector person that has a track record of getting things done, that's exactly what Canada needs to get back on track. Well, they'll certainly get to know you if we get into a snap election in this country. Do you think that's possible this spring? Are you ready for that? That happens? Um, we're going to be ready. Part of my, my role as leader is to make sure the party uh, has a plan, has great candidates, has some policy. We're bringing some great policy out over the next couple of weeks and months, and we're going to be ready. I don't think it's a time because we have to get people through COVID first, but part of my job as opposition leader is Mr. Trudeau controls the, the timeline. I have to be ready. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike.
Hey, welcome back to the show. There's a couple of quick programming notes here for you for coming up a little later on the show. At the top of this hour, we'll talk about the power of Amazon. Jeff Bezos, Amazon owner, just retained his title as the richest human being on the planet. The pandemic has not impacted his wealth at all. In fact, he's gone up like another $74 billion over the last year. Now, some people think Amazon should be broken up. It's too powerful. That's coming up at the top of this hour. And then at 11.30, I'm really looking forward to speaking to Caleb Dahlgren. He is an impressive young man, a former member of the Humboldt Broncos hockey team. He was on the bus the day of the fatal crash. He survived, obviously, does not remember the crash, but he was injured and his amazing recovery and his journey back. Caleb Dahlgren coming up a little later in the show. But first, uh, let's talk about the uh, Doug Premier Doug Ford in Ontario had a major announcement yesterday. Ontario schools will move to online learning after the April break. Is BC going to follow that strategy our show contributor john jang now has the latest john good morning mike we heard a major announcement from provincial leaders and health experts in ontario yesterday saying that all schools in that province will move to virtual classrooms after the april break here's premier doug ford during yesterday's press conference right now we need to do everything possible to get ahead of these variants and unfortunately that means looking at our schools I know this is not what many of you want to hear. Minister Lecce and his team have done an incredible job keeping the schools safe. But until we get the numbers in the community down to where we need them, the problem is not in our schools, it is in our community. And bringing our kids back to a congregate setting in school after a week off in the community is a risk that I won't take because we, need, we know that the more COVID spreads in our communities, the more likely it is to get into the schools, and that would create massive problems for all of us down the road. My friends, no one wants our kids in school more than I do. That's where they belong. But with COVID spreading like wildfire, with these deadly variants taking hold in Ontario, we simply can't be too cautious right now. We have to be proactive. And when it comes to keeping our kids safe, I will never take unnecessary risk. That's why, based on consultation with Dr. Williams and our health officials last night, today we're taking further action. We're moving school online only after the April break. We'll keep a constant eye on the data, on case numbers, hospital capacity and ICU admissions to determine when we can get kids back in the classrooms. I want nothing more than to be able to open the schools up again as soon as possible. But we all need to work together right now to get the community spread under control. Folks, that's how we get the schools open. This announcement has students, teachers, and parents here in BC now wondering, when is it our turn? Dr. Bonnie Henry was asked yesterday on what it would take to close schools again here in British Columbia. 
Yeah, so these are things that we again, you know, I've talked about this many times. We have ongoing daily conversations with the key leadership team around our schools around the province. So we look at what are the measures that need to be in place. We look at what are the options on a school and a school district basis. And uh, my team is part of those discussions. The superintendents, the principals, the school uh, districts, the, the teachers. It's a team approach to looking at this. One of the things that we know is that there are hotspots in the province where there's been um, increased exposure events related to uh, transmission in the community and that's why we prioritize school staff in, in Surrey School District, for example, who have all been offered immunization. And we are moving that out, as I said, to other hotspot areas around the province and that started last week as well. So these are things that are are looked at on an ongoing basis, but I will say that when we see increased transmission in the community, it's when children were not in school. Although she didn't provide any specific benchmarks, it seems unlikely that BC will follow Ontario in this decision anytime soon, once again reiterating that students are safer in schools. The president of the BC Teachers Federation, Terry Mooring, was on the Joe Bennett Show with Jody Vance yesterday. And if there is a plan to add more protective layers or to eventually close schools altogether, Mooring says the BCTF has been left in the dark in those conversations. It's a very, very stressful time. Um, and there are some things making it more stressful. I mean, yeah. by all accounts, we're seeing more cases of some of the variants of concern in BC, even more than um, Ontario. Uh, and we are also in a situation where we don't, there doesn't seem to be any plan for moving to state from stage to stage. So BC has been in stage two all along. Um, the agreement uh, in the spring, uh, uh, when all the partners came together and um, the health and safety documents were first created, and they've been updated many times since then, was that safety had to come first. And, you know, we're concerned that that is not the case. Uh, in other words, we've been in stage two all year. What would it take to move to a different stage, a hybrid learning stage, for example? Um, that information is unknown. And, and in order for the five stages to be um, real <laughs> uh, and valid, you know, that, that information uh, needs to be in place. Kathy Marlis, the creator of the BC School COVID Tracker, endorses the idea of moving to a virtual classroom setting in the province. She's in direct contact with hundreds of teachers and students daily, and she joined us uh, last week on the Mike Smith Show to share those concerns. I have an inbox of hundreds and hundreds of messages. I've had it all the time, this full inbox, but now it's changed. And the fear and anxiety that people had before the staff, the families, were so incredibly high before now it's just I can't even describe it so you know everyone feels like they're going into a um, COVID crock pot <laughs> into the buildings mm. and and I can't say that's not the case and we need to acknowledge that and deal with it and show that they need to show that they care right now they feel the teachers and the support staff and the families we just feel left in the dust at the end of the day, both Premier Ford and Dr. Bonnie Henry made similar points that the danger is within the communities, not necessarily the schools themselves. But where these two differ is how our two provinces now move forward. Ontario can now provide evidence that shutting down schools may or may not benefit bending the curve in that province, whereas in BC, it remains status quo with students physically in schools, at least for now.
Back to you, Mike. Okay, thank you for that, John. That's our own John Jang there with that report. And John joins me now. A very comprehensive report there, John. Good job. You got all sides of it. And I thought it was, it's an interesting situation here that we have in British Columbia. And there are a number of different kind of facets to it, I think. And really boils down to is whether the school should be open or whether we should do like what Ontario has done and shut them down and move exclusively to online learning. And you had a really good clip there from Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday where she was asked about this again. She's asked about this frequently. And her answer on it is that the times that we have seen BC kids and their families getting COVID is when the kids are not in school not in school so she is saying the schools are safe because and if you go a little deeper on this she'll say the times that we've seen kids getting a lot of kids getting sick was after the christmas break it was after spring break when kids are out of school mixing with their friends and family out of school and that's when they're getting sick so her point is look until until we see like widespread covid transmission in the schools themselves that she's not going to shut the schools i'm just wondering what you think of that because you know compared to the vancouver canucks like if you want to see a prime example of like rapid spread of covid that was like the canucks right it's like one guy gets it brings it into the bubble and like 25 people get sick with covid Mm-hmm. We're not seeing that necessarily, at least Dr. Bonnie Henry is arguing, we're not seeing that similar kind of explosive threat uh, spread of, of the disease in an individual school. Like we're seeing kids, you know, they might have COVID, they go to school, then a notification letter goes out. But we're not seeing like entire schools, like hundreds of kids come down with COVID in individual schools, Right. I, I do think you make a good point there, and I would yeah. say um, that's the rhetoric that's been shared over the past number of months while school has been Well, open. is it rhetoric or is it reality? Like, we haven't well, seen... Ex- explo- I, I, I would say, personally, I think it's more rhetoric because there's not enough testing done. Now, the NHL is a little different with the Vancouver Canucks because throughout the season, they're tested every single day, so you know when something is happening. Whereas with schools, you don't have uh, an ability to test these students every single day until the exposure notifications and Letters are sent to families and parents, in which case, yes, you have to go test it. And if you test positive, of course, your whole family has to quarantine. But when you go to school each and every morning, Mike, there's no one there at the door swabbing you and, and taking your tests to know whether or not uh, you're sick. And there's a chance of transmission happening in the schools. It seems very reactionary the way the system is built right now is that uh, you presumably get tested outside of school in the community and then the presumption is made that it's community-based whereas this whole notion of schools kind of gets thrown uh, in under the carpet i would say that maybe it's 50 50 and the schools actually have a role to play in the spread here but we just don't have that evidence because there's not testing done at these schools well you know i got a big stake in this one because i'm a dad i've got a son in grade 10 in a public high school and you know, I've wondered about this and I've thought about it. And there have been some COVID exposures at my son's school. Like we've got one of those, we got one of the letters, right? Mm-hmm. And the letter will say, well, yeah, there was a kid at your son's school who got COVID, but he was not in your age cohort. Okay. So, I mean, I'm not that worried about my son in school. Like he goes, he's a very responsible kid. He's masked up all day at school. Uh, and I just, I just think like a lot of parents would think, you know, 
my kid is better off in school than being at home. Like we talked about the, the mental health impacts on kids, right? Which I think is another one that's top of mind for Bonnie Henry, that when kids are separated from their classmates or they're not going to school, their education suffering and their mental health is potentially suffering too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say to that, uh, it's it's really hard to try and talk about the the importance of that mental health because uh, it's it's irreplaceable. With that said, there are ways now with technology where these kids can socialize uh, virtually. They do it all the time with Facebook Messenger, with text messaging, with FaceTime, with TikTok. All these things allow them to stay connected to their social lives, even if they don't get to see their friends in person. Okay, here's what we'll do. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. Now, let's continue the conversation on the other side here. Let's open the phone line. So phone me now and tell me what you think. We saw what Ontario is doing. You heard from Ontario Premier Doug Ford shutting the schools down. They're going to online learning in Ontario with COVID case counts surging. The numbers are surging here, too. Do you think British Columbia should do the same thing? I'd love to hear from you if you've got kids in school. Phone me and tell me what you think. 604 604- 280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 on your cell. This is Mike Smith. John Jang is with me. Back with your calls. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the growing power of Amazon now. The online retail giant has grown at an unprecedented rate. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos, he recently retained his undisputed title, he is the richest human being on the planet. By the way, the pandemic has not slowed down Amazon one bit. Their share price is up. The personal wealth of Jeff Bezos is growing by billions of dollars here. It's really amazing what we've seen with Amazon. It just doesn't seem to stop. Now, here is the question. Is Amazon too big? Is it too powerful? Is it operating like an unchecked monopoly? Should Amazon be broken up? So much to talk about. Let's discuss now with my guest, Alec McGillis. He is a reporter with ProPublica, and his book is terrific, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Alec. Alec? Yes, hi. Hi there. It's great to have you here. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's talk uh, quickly about um, where, where Amazon is at right now like if you take a look at the past year of of the pandemic it seems like it almost seems like the pandemic has been good for business for amazon they've gotten even bigger is that correct oh they've gotten way bigger yeah. mean, to an extraordinary degree i mean they were they were already huge beforehand of course with they already had about 40 percent of the entire e-commerce market in the u.s they had more than 100 fulfillment centers um, but they've just grown really almost grown by about 50 percent 50 percent more warehouse space um, 400,000 more employees in the U.S. alone, sales up 40%, um, stock up 85%, wow. Bezos' personal wealth up about $60 billion in just a year. Um, oh. It's really, it's hard to grasp just how much bigger and more dominant they got last year. It's just extraordinary. Like, is this unprecedented? I mean, we've never seen anything like this, have we? No, it's really hard to find precedent for this. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, you, um, you'd have to go back to the early 20th century to the days of the Gilded Age and the robber barons to find a time when you had such extraordinary corporate dominance, you know, by the likes of Standard Oil or someone like that, the Rockefellers and all that. But just to have a growth like this in just a year um, is really quite, I I think it's, I I can't think of a precedent for that. 
Okay, there's lots of critics uh, of Amazon out there, and it was really interesting this week to see the result of that union drive there at an Amazon warehouse. A lot of people were following that very closely. We followed it here on the show as well. The effort by a major union there to uh, to get into one of the Amazon warehouses, and they they lost that the union lost that vote pretty handily. What did you think of that? Well, it was it was pretty clear going to that one that it was going to be pretty long odds. It was, it was yeah. remarkable that they were even able to get enough support to call an election. It was the first time ever that you'd had an election at a full Amazon warehouse, um, and to have it happening in the deep south of all places was, was pretty striking. Um, but yeah, the odds were going to be long. One, one thing that I think the, the organizers didn't really bargain on was that um, the, the, they, they underestimated the size of the election unit that was uh, that was going to be eligible to vote there. So when they had a certain mm. amount of support, they thought they were closer to majority support. And then it turned out that the size of the, of the eligible workforce there to vote was going to be much larger than they'd expected. And a lot of, like, supervisor types were going to be allowed to vote and whatnot. So suddenly they were basically facing a much higher number that they had to reach to get a majority. But oh. they decided to go ahead with the election anyway just because they thought it was worth giving it a shot. But um, we'll have to see, you know, whether whether them having lost is going to really have a dampening effect on future efforts uh, to organize elsewhere, or whether it's will still have sort of a service kind of a moral victory because it exposed a lot of things that were going on in the warehouses. So, uh, but yeah, it was I, I was not surprised by the outcome. Put it that way. Okay, that's very interesting. Speaking to Alec McGillis here about the growth of. Amazon. Alec, a lot of people think that Amazon's too big, too powerful. Maybe it should be broken up. Let me play a clip here for you from Democratic Senator Bernie Sanders. Here's Bernie. This is an issue that has got to be looked at. Uh, What we are seeing all over this country is the decline in retail. Uh, We're seeing this incredibly large company getting involved in almost every area of commerce. And I think it is important uh, to take a look at the power and influence that Amazon has. Okay, maybe it's not too surprising for a politician like Bernie Sanders to be uh, critical of a big corporate conglomeration like this, and maybe it should be broken up. But what do you, what do you think the odds are of that? Like, is it possible that you know antitrust regulators could step in here and break up Amazon? Is that possible? It is possible, actually. Yeah. I, I think the odds of of action on on this front are, are perhaps better than than the odds of of organizing a warehouse anytime soon. Um, there's there's just a lot of uh, ferment now in in Washington around this. Actually, in both parties, there's there's actually some some possibility for bipartisan consensus on this score. The and the, the Biden administration is sending signals that it's going to be taking uh, this monopoly issue much more seriously than the Obama administration did. He, they've made a couple appointments already that signal you know real interest in this area um there's just a, a you know a growing sense that that these tech giants not just amazon but google and facebook some of the others have just gotten um <clears throat> far too dominant for you know for the country's good and and that yeah. we are kind of back to a early 20th century moment where, where we're going to have to you know confront a new a new series of monopolies or near monopolies Right. You heard Bernie Sanders there talk about the negative impact on sort of local small business there. And, you know, it's not just in America. I mean, here in Canada, Amazon is is, is very dominant. And uh, um, what do you think about that? Like, you know, some people might look at this company and say, well, this is just a successful business model. You go online, uh, stuff is uh, just about every, anything you'd want to buy is available at reasonable price. 
Uh, if you got an Amazon Prime membership, you often get free shipping. Uh, just like it's suggested in the title of your book, it's quite often just one click, one click, and you're you're done. Uh, your stuff shows up sometimes a day or two later. I mean, what's what's not to like there? Well, that's that's in a way what the what the book is really all about. It's trying to show you what's behind that one click and what the larger consequences of it are, both for the workers in the warehouse and the drivers that are just under extraordinary pressure to make that make those deliveries to fulfill those deliveries for you in a day or two. But then also the broader consequences, broader effects for for small businesses, um, for for your for all, your local community as as it loses the tax base um, that local business used to provide. And then and then what the book gets at most of all is this: the way that that Amazon and the other tech giants are having this effect of essentially sorting our cities into very kind of very expensive, unaffordable sort of winner take all cities, the kind of tech hub cities like Seattle. And then, um, then a much larger number of kind of left behind cities and towns that have seen the commerce kind of sucked out of them, and and are left with only a warehouse, if that. Yeah. And and that that's that inequality is very unhealthy for for North America. Let me let me ask your your, your take on uh, Bezos, Alec. And uh, you mentioned that his personal wealth has surged despite the pandemic. Pandemic has been good for business here for Amazon. He's up to what, like 170 billion odd, something like that. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Uh, Let me play this clip here for you. This is uh, Jeff Bezos in conversation with talk show host David Rubenstein here. Have a listen. Under all uh, kind of regulatory frameworks that I can imagine, um, customers are still going to want low prices. They're still going to want fast delivery. They're still going to want big selection. It's really important that... um, that um, politicians and others uh, not, they need to understand the value that big companies bring in and not demonize or vilify business. Okay, so I guess he's, you know, he's given the people what they want, choice, selection, value pricing, uh, ser- good service, and uh, we shouldn't vilify a good business. What do you think? Well, this is this has basically been the line for the last couple of decades when it comes to the monopoly question that, the reason that we've let, let the, these giants get as big as we have is that we've adopted a sort of very lax approach, which is essentially that monopolies are okay as long as the prices stay low for consumers. And that's, that's, so that's basically what he's saying here. Like, this is what consumers want. They want low prices, and that's that. And, and this, the, those who think that we should be taking a new look at this are basically arguing that even if prices are, quote, low, that, there's a, that there are broader costs and consequences to this, of this kind of dominance um, uh, on our economy and our country and our democracy. And, and so that's, that's sort of what's at stake here, is that it's not just about the, quote, low prices um, and, 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 quote, convenience. The, um, and then, you know, the, the other thing that this kind of gets into is that something I heard from the company when I spoke to them for the book, which is that they basically argued, look, no matter, no matter what, even if, it weren't, if, if we were not the company that was now this dominant, there'd be some other company that would be in our role. It's just these are, there are larger forces, technology, globalization, that have brought us to this point, e-commerce and all that. It was going to happen no matter what. It just happens to be us. Um, and what I think that misses is that there are specific things that the company has done to, to exacerbate a lot of these problems, you know, whether it's their it's aggressive pursuit of, of tax, avoiding taxes, um, making or making the workplace pressures as high as they are in, inside the warehouses or, or in choosing to put its, its second headquarters 
in Washington, D.C., the richest city in, in, in the U.S., instead of putting it somewhere that could really have used those jobs. There are specific things that companies chosen that, that, that have exacerbated the, uh, the inequality. Oh. Um, so I think we, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Okay, you know what? I find it fascinating, and uh, can, we continue to follow it closely here on the show, and we'll watch where this goes forward in the days ahead. Alec, thanks a lot for coming on with your analysis today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.